promise that is. Please open your Bible to the book of Romans, chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 3 to 16. Romans chapter 12, verses 3 to 16. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes with generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, let love be genuine, Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Let's pray. Lord God, your word is a a light into our feet. Your word is a mirror in which we see our true state. Your word is, is life and breath to us. It is a fire It is food. And Lord, now we pray as we read your word, as we study your word, that you would plant your word deep in our hearts, that you would transform your people into your image. Lord, do not let us be conformed to the way of this world, but transform us. Change us. Mold us into the people you would have us be. In Jesus' name, amen. If you take out your notes, <clears throat> it's important as before we look at this passage to set the context. Um, two weeks ago, Pastor Gary started Romans 12.1, and then last week, Romans 12.2, and now this week I'm going to try to cover 13 verses. So um, you, will, you will forgive me. Obviously, by nature of the size of the text, we're going to be going more to bird's eye view, but I think there's some important things you can pick up. Sometimes it's important to dive in, just cover a verse or half a verse, and sometimes you're going to miss the forest for the trees if you don't stand back and look at the whole chunk. But before we even dive into Romans 12, it's important that we understand where we've come in the book of Romans. So if you'll turn back to chapter 1, just do a quick review of where we're at. Nearly all Bible commentators and and theologians agree that the thesis, the central point, Paul's purpose in writing Romans is clearly declared in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, 
The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then, even though the gospel reveals God's righteousness, Paul starts by declaring God revealing something different in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed. And for the next two chapters, Paul is not going to be unpacking the good news, but the bad news. Our need. Just as a doctor knows that you're not going to want to take the medicine until you really are persuaded about the diagnosis, Paul's got to explain, we, we need help. We need a big savior. We need a big gospel because our problem is a big problem. Small problem, small solution. We have a big problem and, and Paul's going to unpack the fact that we have a big savior. And he goes through basically damning us 12 ways to Sunday in the first two chapters. You want to be judged by your conscience, you would fail. You want to be judged by the standard that you judge other people, you would fail. You want to be judged by God's holy law, you would fail. And then in the middle of chapter three, he, he hinges and, and then begins to talk about the good news. Chapter three, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And so from chapter 3, verse 21, moving forward, he begins to unpack the gospel. First, the mechanics, that we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone apart from works. And then after establishing that and using Abraham and David as Old Testament examples of this truth, it's always been the way that God saves his people he begins to deal with some questions and some consequences. And so in chapter 6, does this salvation by faith alone mean that we can sin however we want? And Paul says, may it never be. May it never be. How can you who have died to sin live and serve it? And then in chapter 7, he, he deals with, how, how then are we to deal with the law? And then in chapter 8, we begin some of these most precious promises and results of the gospel that because of the new covenant, because of our relationship with God, he has given us his spirit. Look at 8.15. If you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And he closes chapter 8 with this wonderful promise that nothing can separate us from God's love. And so the first eight chapters have, have shown the need for the gospel, the, the, what the gospel does, how God is able to forgive, and then the consequences. And then in chapters 9 to 11, Paul deals with the issue of, but what about Israel? How does Israel factor into all this, Paul? And he gives us the answer, and we find not only do we have this spirit of adoption, but in chapter 11, that we've been grafted in like wild olive branches to the promises of Abraham. And then he ends chapter 11 with this exalted doxology, 1133. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? 
or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And it is only from that point of unpacking the gospel, showing our incredible need, showing God's incredible provision, the wonderful, overflowing blessings of the gospel. Only then does Paul turn to tell us how to live. Because Christianity is not about moralizing people. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, if you're not trusting in Christ, please do not hear from this morning's message that you need to go do things. You need to go live a certain way. That's, 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 that's what most every other world religion teaches. Christianity teaches that it's only when you're trusting in Christ, it's only when you're at rest in the work of Christ, can you then set about the work of joyfully serving God, not to earn your salvation, but to demonstrate, evidence your salvation. Chapter 12 isn't chapter one. So even though in chapter 12, we're gonna start to get some practical exhortation. Paul's gonna shift, if you will, from indicative statements, statements of this is what is, to imperative commands. We're gonna go from the facts of the gospel to the lifestyle of the gospel. But the commands, the imperatives, are built upon the foundation of the indicatives, the statements, the doctrine. And that's the way Paul always writes in Ephesians, the first three chapters, doctrine. This is what is true. Last three chapters, this is how you live in light of the truth. And it's the same here. And so that's how you've got to understand verses one and two. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God that we've just read about over 12 chapters. Basically, Paul's saying... In in consequence of everything that you've just heard me say, here's how you ought to live. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And these two verses really set up the rest of the book. The rest of the book, we're going to get Christian Living 101. And it's all about not being conformed to this world system. Not being fit literally into the mold. The, the world, I don't know if you know this, this world wants to mold you. It actively wants to shape you. It wants to take your thinking and bend it into its mold. It wants to take your living and bend it into its mold. It wants you to look just like it. <clears throat> and God says, don't, don't, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Literally metamorphous. It's the type of word we use to talk about a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. God isn't looking to, to moralize you and just sort of get you to fit in. He wants to change you from the inside out. And that's why the New Testament uses language like, I'll take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. It talks about being born again, new life, if anyone is in Christ, all things have become new. God wants to transform you. That's, that's the promise of the gospel. Maybe you are a certain way. That can change. God can change you. But it sets up this conflict that's going to be coming of the way the world does things, the wisdom of the world, the world system that wants to conform us, and the way God wants us to do things. And we've got to renew our minds and test and discern what the will of God is. We've got to walk carefully. 
Because you'll notice that a lot of the wisdom of the world can creep into the church very subtly. And so unless we're being discerning, unless we're holding up the word as that light, unless we're looking at it intently, we can adopt and subtly the church can be conformed to the world without ever knowing it. And so we're going to look at three examples, three areas that Paul wants us to not be conformed to the world in and rather to be transformed and, and prove and live the will of God. And it's all about humbly serving and loving the body of Christ. It's, it's a large chunk of text, I know, but there's a linking theme. It's kind of like a sandwich. If you look at verse 3, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. And look down at verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Do you, do you see this linking theme that makes a sandwich here of this text? It's a warning against pride. Or specifically, Paul says, do not think too highly of yourself. Don't think too highly of yourself. And so that sort of helps me set on this text as a chunk is, is it's going to permeate through the whole thing. And it, it's interesting to note that Paul sets up by the mercies of God, right? Verse 1 of chapter 12. And then he lays out his own apostolic authority here. By the grace given to me, I say. And the very first thing he instructs us about, the very first thing he's concerned about, the very first way God's wisdom and God's way of doing things will differ with the world's wisdom, he says, is don't think too highly of yourself. That should be striking to us because what our world says almost constantly is that the number one problem most of us have is we don't think highly enough of ourselves. You know that, right? That the wisdom of this world says that most of us probably are struggling with not thinking well enough of ourselves. That what most of us need is to think better of ourselves, is to think more importantly of ourselves, to have more confidence in ourselves. And Paul assumes we have the exact opposite problem. I mean, you, you see the collision right here in verse 3. You see the collision with our way of doing things in our world and God's wisdom. They're, they're head on. Paul says, and, he, and he's not responding to a specific problem in Rome. It's not as though there was some issue going on in Rome that Paul knew about. Paul had never visited them. He hadn't got a letter from them. He just knows because they're people that they're given, we're given, to this error. We're given to this error. And, and I know that, uh, that there are people who struggle with negative self-image. There's a pamphlet that we taught on this uh, about two years ago, and you can ask Renee for a copy of the message it may or may not be up online but I'd recommend this pamphlet to you Self-Image How to Overcome Inferiority Judgments by Lou Criolo if that's something you want to pursue but I'll try to prove the point of what I mean um, the bottom line we all think very highly of ourselves I don't care how poorly you feel about your accomplishments in life when you're parking the car at the mall you look for the space closest to the mall, don't you? You don't think to yourself, I'm not that important. I should probably leave these good spaces open for more important people who may have more important things to do, so they should probably have shorter walks to the mall. I don't, I don't think that way. <laughs> um, 
when I'm at Costco and you know, they're, you know there's the pizza there and you, you're asking for a slice, I'm trying to point them to the bigger one, right? Um, I'm not thinking, you know, there might be some really important people here. I better take the smallest life just to be careful, right? Um, in fact, Dr. Street, who uh, was out here a few years ago doing a marriage conference, gave an example that I think is telling of the way that, if we're honest, all of us think pretty highly of ourselves. We prefer ourselves. We put our interests forward. He was um, sitting in the cafeteria at my, my alma mater, Master's College, and he was seeing a backup in, in the line in the salad bar. And what was happening was there's a girl in the salad bar who was hovering over the cherry tomatoes, and she was picking them up and sort of holding them up and looking at the cherry tomatoes. And it just so happened that this girl was meeting with Dr. Street for some counseling, and he knew that she had come to him with a diagnosis of low self-esteem. And he shared the insight that there's no doubt that this girl is struggling with some issues and some inferiority judgments about herself, but when push comes to shove, he said, I know what she's doing. What she's not doing is saying, I don't deserve good cherry tomatoes, so I want to make sure I pick the worst ones. No, what she's doing is picking the best ones, the ripest ones, the juiciest ones, because when, when the rubber hits the road, she thinks pretty highly of herself. She's willing to let the line back up so that she can get the best ones. And, and that's where Paul's heading, because the reason why he sets this up initially is because he knows this is going to be the biggest factor in stopping us from loving and serving the church. <coughs> is what I want more important than what you want? Is what I'm comfortable with more important than what you're comfortable with? That's the type of thinking highly of ourselves that Paul's going after. How, how important is it to you what others want and desire? How important is to you what you want and desire? How important is your way, fulfilling your dreams, accomplishing your goals, as opposed to accomplishing the goals and serving others? That's where this is headed. So Paul warns us not to think too highly of ourselves. He warns us not to be proud, not to think we're wise in our own sight. And he gives us two reasons for this. The first is seen in verses um, three and six. He wants each of us to think with sober judgment according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. And then jump down to verse um, six. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. God has assigned a measure of faith. We have gifts that have been given. And the point is that whatever gifts we have, we have received. Any good thing you have, any good thing I have, it's not something we've earned. It's not something we deserve. It's a gift. And how foolish it would be to boast in a gift. In 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul writes, Who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it. Are you good at math? Are you good at art? Are you good at music? Is that something you did? Or is that a gift from God? How foolish it would be to boast in that. You might as well boast about the color of your hair. But yet that won't stop us, will it? It won't stop us. But remembering these things. And this is the type of sober judgment. Again, Paul isn't saying we should all feel terrible about ourselves. We should view ourselves in light of the gospel. We should view ourselves in light of God's truth and have a sober assessment of ourselves. I mean, if, if you think through the last 12 chapters of Romans, you can't really walk away thinking that we're all that great. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seeks for God. There is none who does good. All have become worthless and turned aside. 
Or Paul in Romans 7, I know that in me there is nothing good. Now, the gospel is not the declaration of our worth, declaration of, of how wonderful we are. And some people, sadly, will present the gospel that way. As if God were in heaven looking down and, oh, there are these wonderful people. And they're so precious and valuable. And, you know, I love my son and all, but they're more valuable to me. So I'll, I'll, I'll let him die for them. And that turns the gospel upside down. It makes the gospel about our worth. And we are treasured and prized by God. We are a, a people for his own possession. But he loved us in spite of who we are, not because of who we are. He loved us in spite of our sin, in spite of our rebellion, in spite of our worthlessness apart from him. And then he is fashioning and crafting us into something that is truly beautiful and valuable. Jesus will present his bride to himself without spot or wrinkle or any blemish. There will be a day when we are conformed to the image of Christ. We will be holy as he is holy. But that's, that day is not today. And Paul is saying, you need to remember that. That yes, you're an heir of Christ and an heir of the world. Yes, you have a spirit of adoption. Yes, you can call God daddy. But don't, remember where you, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget what you were saved from. And don't boast. He warns us of that in chapter 11 when, when we learn that Israel, the cultivated olive branches have been cut off and set aside for a time and that we are grafted and he warns us, don't boast. Don't think it's because you did something good. Don't think it's because you're something special. God cut some branches off. He can graft others back in and he will. If the gospel does anything, it eliminates boasting. It eliminates bragging. It eliminates strutting your stuff. And it should make us humble. Humility really is, is one of the truest hallmarks of Christianity. In, in C.S. Lewis's great Mere Christianity, um, he writes this about pride and how dangerous it can be. The Christian is right. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation in every family since the world began. Other vices may sometimes bring people together. You may find good fellowship and jokes and friendliness among drunken people or unchaste people. But pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that... And therefore, know yourself as nothing in comparison. You do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. And it's that attitude which is going to keep us from the body of Christ. It's going to keep us from loving and serving the body. And that brings us to his second point of why... We shouldn't think too highly of ourselves. Not only any good thing we have we've received, but we, we, differing parts serve differing functions. In verse four, for as in one body we have many members and the members not have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And, and praise God that you are gifted and that you are good at what you do. Praise God that you have something to offer here. And you may have something to offer which no one else has to offer, but every 
member of the body is important. And again, this, this is very similar language to the language Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 12, where he talks about almost in identical words, 12 verses 12 through 20. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members are one body, though many, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we're all baptized into one body, Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. The whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? The whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? As it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And so, if we begin to boast in our position and our function and our part in the body, we really are despising what God is doing. And that's why Paul starts this passage with this concept and ends this, con- this passage with this concept of humility because it's going to get in the way of service and it's going to get in the way of love. This brings us to point three, that we are to serve the body of Christ with humility. Serve the body of Christ with humility. Having introduced the the metaphor of the body, in in verse 6, Paul says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if serving in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. If God's gifted you with something, the wrong response, if you want like the put off and the put on, the put off, don't be proud. Stop being proud. Stop thinking too highly of yourself. What should you do? Use your gift. Serve. Use it. Pour yourself into the church. And it's only by thinking that you're superior is what's going to stop you from this. If you have a mentality the church is lucky to have someone like me, then you know you're in trouble. And, And Paul tells us to do it Two ways. First, according to the gift that is given you. Verse 3, he says that each one a measure of faith that God has assigned. And then in verse 6, having gifts that differ according to grace given to us, let us use them. And what I mean is this if you're an eye, be an eye, don't try to be a hand. Recognize how God has gifted you. And, and Paul's explicit here. It's each one. There's every one of us here. Not just some, not just a handful. Every one of us is gifted uniquely by God for his body, for the church. And, and the danger is we can look at other people's gifts and, and be jealous. And I wish I could do what so-and-so does. I wish I was good at, you know, math like so-and-so. I wish I was good at preaching like so-and-so. I wish I was good. And, and never actually use your own gift. And so we've got to use our gifts according to what we've been given, not what we haven't been given. We've got to figure out, where's my part here? And this is, this is something I'd encourage you to think through. You know, what is your function? What is your gifting? What are you passionate about? What are you good at? What is it that when you do, others are blessed by it? That's a real good indication. If you do something in the body, if you serve in some way, and others are blessed, people thank you, people say, wow, thank you so much. That's a good indication that you might be on to something when it comes to what your gift is, your giftedness is. 
Paul goes through the list of gifts that were prevalent in his day, and we're not going to take them apart gift by gift. This isn't an exhaustive list. We know that because he has other lists in other books that overlap but aren't identical. He's just giving a, a smattering, a sampling of the gifts that are available in the church. And we're also supposed to use our gifts according to the grace or the faith that is given. <clears throat> we all have differing gifts, and we have them at differing intensities, different levels of faith and maturity. In fact, turn over to chapter 14. Paul will talk about differing levels of faith here. 14.1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And he goes on to describe this person as someone who their conscience is bothered about whether or not they should eat meat or not. And, and Paul says, you know, welcome the guy. He's weak in faith. His faith isn't as mature or strong as it could be. He's a brother, though. Love him. And so not only do we have differing gifts, but we have differing levels of maturity, different measures of faith and grace. And again, we should be serving and using our gifts in accordance with those two things. In fact, if anything, if you, if you conclude that you're very gifted, you're very mature, if anything, that just means you're more responsible for serving harder and longer and better. Because to whom much is given, much will be required. Maybe you're the servant who the Lord gave two talents. Maybe you're the servant who the Lord gave five talents. Don't bury them. Use them. To whom much is given, much will be required. And so we should use our gifts in the body don't be arrogant, don't be proud, but to humbly serve. To humbly serve. To pour ourselves out into Christ's church. I mean, have you ever stopped to think that why did Jesus leave you on earth? I mean, why, when you became a Christian, didn't the Lord zap you up into heaven immediately? I mean, think about it. You would never sin anymore. You would never have to feel sorrow and grief over your sin. You would never offend the Lord anymore. You would know him perfectly. You would be in fellowship with him perfectly. Why on earth would the Lord not do that? It wasn't so that you could advance your career. It wasn't so that you could enjoy your time on earth. It was so that he could build his church and gather in his sheep. It was so that the great commission could be fulfilled. And, and we know that the Lord's going to come back when that last sheep enters the fold. When the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, he's going to return. And so to pour yourself into anything other than the church is, is not only inconsequential, but foolish. Pour yourself into the church. Find your giftedness and serve. And now we're going to see serve with love. Not only to serve with humility, but to love the body of Christ in sincerity. And it's, it's not for nothing these two concepts of service and love go together. If you think of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, 12 is all about the body metaphor. 14 is about spiritual gifts. And what sits right in between 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, but 1 Corinthians 13, the chapter on love. Paul knows that if we're going to serve, if we're going to function together, use our gifts the glue that holds us together will be love. And without that glue, there'll be jostling and controversy and ambition and jealousy and strife. And so he wants us to use our gifts to pour ourselves into his church, but he wants us to do it in love. Love the body with sincerity. And we're gonna look at five ways that we're gonna do that. 
But first, I want to look at this word sincerity, or in, in my translation, let love be genuine. It's, it's a funny little Greek word. It literally means let love be without play acting. That's, that's interesting, play acting. Hypocritical love. And that, and that begs some questions. What, what does play acting love look like? Well, it's, it's something that looks like love on the surface, but underneath it is not. And there are ways that we can do that. We can smile at people, be nice to people that we don't like, that we're not, we're not going to really love. But, you know, we don't want to start anything, so we'll, we'll just... Hi, hi, hi there. Yeah. Um, in fact, if you turn in your Bibles to Proverbs um, 27, um, Proverbs talk about this type of thing, the danger of, of superficial, insincere love. Proverbs 27, 5 to 6, we read, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. We'll just zoom in that last phrase. That there are enemies who flatter and say nice things. There are people who, when they see you to their face, will, will say pleasantries and, and nice things, but inwardly that's not the case. And Paul says, don't love in that way. Don't love superficially. Don't love merely externally. Don't love only when people are watching. Don't play act at love. Let love be genuine and without play acting, without hypocrisy. And he goes on to give us five ways that we're to love in this way. And we're just going to look at them quickly. Let's look back in uh, Romans 12 at verse 9. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. The first way that we're to love is with discernment and holiness. To love with discernment and holiness. And again, this takes the culture's view of love head on. Our culture... If you were to ask our culture to define love, it would probably be something like unconditional acceptance. Unconditional acceptance. And if you ask people what the antithesis of love was, it would sound something like judging, judgmentalism. So you've got love which just embraces and accepts and we gather. We don't make any distinction. And then you've got not love, which is judging. And Paul says, let love be without play acting abhor, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Paul doesn't think these are mutually exclusive concepts. That you can somehow love genuinely in a way that separates the good from the bad. In fact, we just heard in Proverbs, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Which, this isn't a new concept. Solomon knew that there are people who in the name of love will look over sin, ignore it, we're just going to cover it. We're just going to look the other way. What's far better is, is rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, right? If we're really loving each other, genuinely, one of the things we're going to be doing is, is recognizing sin and dealing with it. I, I love the other word, not only to abhor what is evil, but to hold fast to what is good. Literally be glued to it. Just, just glue yourself to the good. Discern lovingly. It's the truth in love. They need to be in balance. You know, discernment and separating the good from the bad without love can be harsh, but a sort of happy, inclusive, 
non-discerning love helps nobody. The, the two need to come together, the truth and discernment and love. And then it's genuine. Then it's the real thing. Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-three: whoever rebukes a man will afterwards find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. And again, the contrast, there are people who love and deal with sin, and there are people who, instead of that, say nice, happy things, and Solomon calls it flattery. If I walked in here with a big piece of cream cheese sticking off my mustache, big piece of cream, I had a bagel this morning, it was a big blob of cream cheese, and I walked up to him, oh, how are you doing? How's it going, Zeb? You know, Zeb might be tempted for the awkwardness not to say anything, but he's not really my friend if he lets me walk around and greet people with this big blob of cream cheese here, right? What's a friend going to do? A friend's going to say, hey. Oh, you know, no, I'll go in the bathroom and take care of it. That's, that's what a friend is going to do. Well, if a friend sees an area of sin in my life, if a friend sees a, uh, an area of sin in, in another friend's life, they're going to lovingly address it. They're not going to flatter. They're not going to say pleasant things and ignore it. Love needs to be genuine and without play acting. And the first sign of that type of love is a love that abhors what is evil and holds fast to the good. It's a discernment. It's with discernment and with holiness. Secondly, it's with enthusiasm and zeal. Verses 10 to 11. We need to first love with holiness and discernment. Secondly, we need to love with enthusiasm and zeal. Love this. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Just imagine what that would look like. A competition. We're going to have an all-church competition to who can outserve and prefer each other. Who can outlove each other. And, and that's what Paul is saying. He's just, just, just pour yourself into this with zeal. With, with great jealousy, with great passion. The zealots were the terrorists of Jesus' day. This is speaking about strong passion. Just be zealous for it. Outdo one another. I mean, it sounds almost ridiculous. And I've seen it in a few people. There, there's a, a guy who mentored and discipled me growing up um, named Chris Powell. Grew up in New Hampshire with me. He was a police officer, one of the most gifted evangelists I know. Um, and that guy just, he, he got this. Good luck not getting in shotgun or the front seat if you're with him. He would like race you to the car so he could get in the back seat. The guy's well over six foot tall. Sometimes would look ridiculous. But he just took such great delight in serving and preferring. If he had any money on him, and he wasn't a wealthy guy, but if he had any money on him, he was going to be buying you food, buying you something. Just loved. I mean, I really, looking back, think he was trying to do that. He was trying to outdo people, zealously pouring himself into love and good deeds. And Paul says, that's, and again, you can see how a selfish, self-centered attitude is the antithesis of this type of love. If I'm the important one, if I get the big slice of pizza, if I get the best parking space, if I get the best cherry tomatoes, I'm not really outdoing people in love and zeal. With enthusiasm and zeal. And then we next look at, we need to love sincerely with endurance and perseverance. Verse 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. This type of love isn't just a short spurt, it's in it for the long haul. Being patient in tribulation. You know, our, our church in this country hasn't suffered much persecution in tribulation. 
He may be coming, but there's many places in the world where today the church is being persecuted. It's one thing to, to love each other when the sun's shining and when it's a good day. It's quite another to love each other when bad things are happening. And even to some degree, we're getting a taste of this in the recession that we have. And it's harder to love now, isn't it? The cares of this world are, are more pressing. Finances are tighter. And yet, and yet Paul says to love, rejoicing in hope, being patient in tribulation, and constant in prayer. Not just in season, but out of season. So we've got discerning love. We've got a zealous, enthusiastic love. We've got an enduring love that's in it for the long haul. Next, D, we're to love with generosity and compassion. Generosity and compassion. Verses 13 and 15. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And then in verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. So we're to give to the needs of the saints. We're to be hospitable. We're not just to associate with people like us, but with the lowly. The word for hospitality is just a compound word, philo-xenos, philo, Philadelphia, brotherly love, to love. Xenos, alien, like xenophobia. It's the lover of strangers, a lover of aliens. Hospitality, in this sense, is not simply inviting your best friends over a lot. It's being willing to take chances and invite people you hardly know over. And then you factor in verse 16, and you're associating with the lowly. And it might mean inviting people who are altogether unlike you. The early church did this wonderfully. The early church did this wonderfully, we have on record. But being willing to open your home up to strangers, open your home up to people who are altogether different than you are. Because we're most comfortable with people just like us. People with our same background, our same values, you know, our same age, our same interests. And we get together in groups built around that. And Paul's saying here, no, we should be associating with people all together on the spectrum. We should be having all sorts of different people into our lives. That's what genuine, non-hypocritical love looks like. Because Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, right? They invited people over to their house for nice parties, but they're always the people who could in turn invite them back, right? That's the pharisaical hospitality. I'll just invite the people who are going to invite me over and we're just going to just have a nice little circle of going from home to home. Um, there's nothing wrong with that, it, but if you think that's something, Jesus is calling us to something far greater. Paul is calling us to something far greater, being generous and compassionate. And finally, practicing forgiveness. And verse 14 really serves as the link for next week about persecution. Um, some people struggle with this placement here, but I think Paul knows what he's doing, you know? Let's, let's give the guy the benefit of the doubt. He knows what he's doing. He understands that within the church, there can be persecution from the church. We're going to deal with persecution from the outside next week. The rest of chapter 12 is going to deal with overcoming evil, overcoming slander and, and, and persecution and mistreatment by the world. But here in verse 14, in the context of, this, of the church, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. And so finally, we're going to see that true love, sincere love, we love with patience and forgiveness. We love with patience and forgiveness. Here's, here's a surprising statement. It may come as a shock to some of you, but people in the church will mistreat you. People in the church will be mean to you. People in the church will upset you. And when they do, and they will, 
You gotta be patient for forgiving. You gotta bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. This, this is how genuine, sincere, not play-acting love is lived out in the church. It's full of discernment and holiness, separating the good from the bad. It's filled with enthusiasm and zeal. It's, it's overflowing. It's, a, it's, it's excited. It's active. It's enduring and persevering. It's in it for the long haul. It's full of generosity, compassion, and it patiently endures wrong and, and forgives those who wrong. I'm going to ask the, uh, the worship team up front for a final song. And it's just my prayer that God would work in us to transform us this way. It, it needs to be a transformation. These things don't come naturally, do they? This type of love doesn't come naturally. We need to be transformed. We need to become servants of one another. We need to not view ourselves as most important, not view our interests as number one, but the interests of Christ's church and his body. We need him to make us into servants so that we can use his gifts in love. Please stand as we sing our closing song, Make Me a Servant.